Good afternoon, this is Armand. Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Welcome to the Polymath Project. Over the next several weeks, we will have a series of speakers on topics related to health and science, PhD scientists, practicing medical doctors, uh, both of Eastern and Western orientation, I'm really interested in an integrated modern science that takes into account and pays respect to the thousands and thousands of years of experience, of wisdom, of foundational human sciences that have come through mostly the East, uh, but that are now passed into the global lineage and are there for health care workers and wellness practitioners to learn from and bring into a modern context using modern tools and technology to uh, improve the way medicine and healthcare is done. Today's guest is someone whose outcall of integrated nature has lived and studied both uh, here in the West as well as the East, Mariko. Hirakawa has studied deeply in the Ayurvedic medicine lineage and um, system in India directly for seven years. Uh, she has a medical degree. She's a doctor recognized uh, by Ayurvedic schools in India and practices uh, internationally, uh, both healthcare, holistic counseling, and life coaching as well. It's really a holistic teaching. So I'm very happy to welcome her to the show today to talk to us more about how Ayurvedic philosophy and medicine and wellness can be you know, of value uh, to all of us, but especially those of us that are coming from a Western context in mind. Mariko, welcome to the Palmouth Project. Thank you so much for being with me today. My total pleasure, Armand. Thank you for having so, me. Having me. So, where do we find you today? I see you have a beautiful uh, background and setting there. <laughs> what part of the yes, world are you in? I am in Jaipur, Rajasthan, uh, affectionately known as the Pink City. This exactly, actually, terracotta. And uh, I'm, well, I don't want to call it stranded, but I have been here for the past uh, 90 days. And I came for a two week, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a two week trip and ended up here for like over three months. So uh, um, I don't like to say stranded because it feels like, a, you know, like a, like a powerless thing. Uh, um, I'm, I'm living here as if I chose it and it's a beautiful yes. land. And um, I feel there's a reason for it, you know, and uh, it's really giving me fresh perspective on like this crazy thing that's happening in the world, this monumental time we are all witnessing as a collective human family. So I really feel yeah. blessed um, to have a beautiful abode and um, the Indian people have been wonderful. And so I'm really happy to be here. That's great. Lynn, like you said, everything happens for a reason. I know that you, uh, from our previous talks, had spent many years you know, in India, traveling there, not, not originally from there, but traveling there to study uh, and your background is obviously well well documented as you know as in Ayurvedic 
medicine. Can you tell me and tell the audience a little bit about your journey, your inspiration for, you know, taking that path and, and what specifically uh, you did on, on that part of your journey? Yeah, well, it's kind of like, where do I begin? Because actually, when I was nine months old, <laughs> nine months old, my parents, this was in the 70s, you know, they decided to like, you know, break out of the salary man, my father decided to break out of the salary man box of way of living in Japan. And he just like took all the savings he had, he left that corporate job, and he went to India, which, you know, at the time, they had like no Lonely Planets guidebook or anything. So I was a little bundle in his knapsack. My mother was crazy enough to jump in and say, yes, let's do this trip. And everybody was against it. The whole, like the extended family was against it, but they were like, we're doing this. So there's one, that's one thing. And they were in India for like a whole year. <laughs> they were in Kathmandu, Rishikesh, you know, the Northern India, uh, living in houseboats and cottages and all kinds of places and Afghanistan as well for uh, over like one year. So uh, uh, wow. I think that somewhere there, the, the, the dust of India got lodged in my DNA <laughs> because, um, you know, fast forward many years later, um, I, you know, I was a dancer. I was a professional ballet dancer, Western dance. And then um, somehow I hit a glass ceiling with that and I was seeking a deeper purpose. And uh, through that, just seeking single, kind of mindedly just just because I really felt I needed to know what my purpose was to like live every day I was you know it just didn't seem like like why am I existing it was an existential crisis I had at like 19 so that led me to discover yoga through a yoga center but then it was run by these disciples of a master so I simultaneously discovered physical what we call hatha yoga and during this the very first class, like I discovered, like, I think I received initiation right in that Shavasana, the relaxation of that first session. Cause I saw like incredible, I experienced my body as light, like never experienced my body like that, even though I thought I knew my body pretty well as a dancer. And so that led me to like, whoa, this thing we call yoga is like, way more than just physical stretching and breathing and stress release. Um, there's something far deeper. And uh, that was a spark. I just was following this thread. And um, I asked, you know, who is this master? And I was kind of skeptical about guru. But um, at that point, I was so on fire about discovering my purpose and desperately really desperate to know like what direction and so this like took a one-way bus to the Catskills and um, met my teacher uh, who you know kind of opened the gate for me and um, that led me to embrace teaching yoga full-time but then I realized the way the West is you know thinks about yoga is very strictly physical physical and um it's put in a like fitness category fitness box and i just felt this is so limiting you know because what i experienced was like way more than just having you know uh the yoga butt or the yoga body or you know i wanted you know this 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 deep it was like the most transformational thing I ever experienced as a human being and uh, what we're calling yoga just didn't seem to serve it, you know? So through my seeking, I, um, I guess about four years into teaching, I just 
started to get all these private clients who were um, uh, terminally ill with cancer. And um, it was just like very heavy for me. And, and after like seeing uh, clients and then I'd, you know, just after a few months, one would pass away or just having like many clients, you know, that I was so close to um, die on me. I just, it just lit a fire inside of me. And I thought, this is not enough. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, embrace, I want to learn, there must be a healing modality that, um, that works with yoga that takes this deeper. And so that's when I started seeking, turning every stone that I could, you know, reading all this alternative uh, healing medicine. And I studied Chinese medicine for about two years, but I felt like it's translating from one language to another. And it was always something was lost in the translation. So when I discovered Ayurveda, it was just like a revelation. I thought, my gosh, this is like the same, they speak the same language, it comes from the same culture, and they have the same perspective. And it just felt like, you know, perfect, perfect sinking. And I decided to enroll myself in the only Ayurvedic college there was at the time in the East Coast, and uh, did that for a year, but did nowhere felt ready to start treating anybody at the end of that year. And so I asked one of the doctors who did a module of this course, and they said, well, the next step is for you to come to India. <laughs> so, um, so I followed them along, and um, that was my first trip to India as an adult in 1999. And um, after six weeks with them, I was like, well, I still don't feel ready. <laughs> they were like, well, the only next step is for you to enroll yourself in a full-fledged university uh, that accredits doctors, you know, Indian students into full Ayurvedic doctors, and that's five and a half years. <laughs> Are you ready to do that? And um, that's when I just went, you know, knocking around all the universities in India, seeing if they would take a foreign student. And at the time, not many, um, most of them didn't have an English medium course. So um, I, was almost giving up really, but um, I discovered through the grapevine that this one school does accept foreign students, but then it was like so much money for the tuition that I didn't have. Um, and I thought, well, there must be a scholarship for students who want to study these kinds of things. And so I went to Delhi and oh my God, the Indian bureaucracy is <laughs> too much, but I went from one office to the other. And again, I was almost giving up, but, um, something in me as a just keep going and and finally i i was like i met this girl who was studying indian dance in one full scholarship in an indian university and i thought where'd you get that scholarship and so following her along i i managed to secure a full uh full funding for my education for five and a half years plus stipend um of course not a lot but um so that you know i managed to um study in India for actually ended up being seven years um, as an official scholar in India in the Indian University system and before and after that yeah before and after that I studied yoga and allied sciences because once you get into this world you realize you pull on one thread and there's like so much you know there's yoga there's Sanskrit there's you know, Vedic astrology, there is Vastu, the um, Indian science of geomancy. There's like a whole, you know, micro, you know macrocosm really of, of these disciplines 
and uh, so it's like one lifetime is never enough. But um, I consider myself really, really lucky to have had that, and such a luxury to study. Just dedicate seven my seven years of my life to just studying, which was um, a dream come true. That's fascinating. And and so so what is the degree actually a medical degree considered like a like a dot like a doctor would be here? Someone that went through Western Medical School. Is it the same corresponding degree um, in India? Yes, in, in, in India, you are considered a primary healthcare uh, provider if you have BAMS, that's Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery. Believe it or not, there is also surgery in Ayurveda. And uh, so that allows you to be called doctor and uh, you know dispense medicine, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it is a... Uh, pretty rigorous uh, because actually studying Ayurveda is like four times the amount of work because you have to study Sanskrit, you have to study the uh, the the tech, the classic texts in Sanskrit, and also study the you know Western uh, anatomy, physiology, pathology, all those things. You have to study both, and um, it's yeah. So it's, it was I'd say five and a half years is not even enough. Really, <laughs> it's so much knowledge. And, and then within your study, you also have like what we would equate to a residency here in the Western system of actually practicing exactly. and seeing patients in, in actual hospitals in India. And you perform that there as well. So one academic year is one and a half years. So you do three of those and that's four and a half years. And then it's one full year of internship and you kind of rotate departments. There's obstetrics and there's gynecology and pediatrics and just like a real hospital in the west you know there's all these departments there's also panchakarma department which deals with deep cleansing uh specific ayurvedic protocols so uh one year uh you know as as a, a full-time intern that's fantastic so so how i want to talk about this um east versus west kind of approach to health and medicine a little bit so with that background and the intensity of the study and the recognition you have credentialing there, um, I mean, we all know that in the U.S., like any country or area, they, they have their own standards. So how does, how does that translate? So you, you come back, you come to the U.S. with that, and obviously that's not recognized. I don't think. Exactly. Is there a correspondent or, or a way to, for that to be recognized without having to start all over if you want to be considered a doctor? here by like a Western standard? Yeah, it's really, you know, of course the, it, it, um, the BAMS is not a, you know, recognized degree here. So really what I can do is consult and with, you know, the, the, the disclaimer that I can make recommend supplements that <laughs> I can't call them medicines or herbs, you know, but um, it's, it's uh, so it's very limited in the United States. Um, but it's much, um, the legislature, there's a kind of a war going on in the Ayurveda world too. You know, the, uh, the American trained or the Western trained Ayurvedic practitioners versus the Indian trained, um, you know, BAMS doctors. And so I think, you know, there's a, we need, they need to get clarity on that. And, and so in order for the legislature to go through, just like the uh, Chinese acupuncturists, they've been accepted. So I feel Ayurveda should also be fully accepted as well. Um, but you know, with the FDA regulations on herbs and all of that, there there's a there's some um, 
some restrictions. Still though, Ayurveda is forte is so much on lifestyle, so much on self-knowledge, so much on um, even just, you know, simple herbs can make a huge difference. So even with the limited repertoire of things we can do here, I've seen amazing things. So, um, but I hope that, yeah, in the future, Ayurveda becomes more and more accepted. Yeah, we need, we need to lobby for that too. I mean, we're talking <laughs> about thousands of years of, of um, just wisdom across all levels of health. And, and so what, what I'd love to do for, you know, for our, you know, talk today, it's fascinating and we can talk about so many things, but in, in the context of, this COVID world we live in and, you know, the response people are having, which has been largely obviously fearful and, and trying to understand this new disease or dis-ease and, and how it's, uh, the virus is, is or can affect us and how do we protect ourselves. So in, in light of that and in light of your background, um, uh, I guess walk us through, and I know you have some slides and we'll jump, you know, back and forth as, as we're speaking. Just, just walk us through, give us a bit of kind of like an Ayurveda uh, 101 uh, in the context of today's modern world and, and you know, with, with, with some tips and advice kind of sprinkled in, if, if, if you might. I think people could benefit from a bit of an alternative perspective to what they may be hearing from the CDC, at least in the U.S. Uh, and I know every country has its own governing body and, and government's trying to do the best they can to uh, hopefully to, to actually support uh, their people and, and offer them uh, real health healthcare. Um, so in that context, bring us your Ayurvedic perspective, a bit of 101. And while you're talking, I'll, I'll bring up some of the wonderful information you have here as well on Ayurveda and Agni and, and all of that. So yeah, yours. my Ayurveda is vast, so it's quite a task to, uh, to, to really distill it. But really what I would say is that, you know, this crisis that is happening is really we can think of it as microcosm macrocosm um imbalance happening right and so when we talk about imbalance i mean because both uh systems like ayurveda and chinese medicine they really are their forte is in capturing patterns of energy and and that is why it's not just like you dissect and go to the very part, you know, it's, it's not just about looking at the part, but it's really looking at the whole picture. And so I think that, you know, Ayurveda comes from the Sanskrit word, uh, the two words, Ayuhu and Veda. And Ayuhu is a word that means life force, but specifically because Sanskrit is a word, you know, is, is a language that has, uh, is rich in vocabulary describing the subtle realm. So they have many words for things like life force. And Ayu is a very specific term for life force in the embodied form of life in this, you know, incarnation, you know, and like we have one other word called prana. I'm sure many yoga, yoga practitioners recognize that word. Prana is a word like, but prana can be outside of your body. Prana is, you know, is, is, can be disembodied outside everywhere. But Ayu is like, it's specific to this lifespan, right? And then Veda is this organized body of knowledge. So looking at this whole COVID, it's, it's really a world that's, you know, so far out of balance, you know, that, and, and I think it comes from partly our failure to truly 
know ourselves, our failure to truly recognize, recognize who we truly are. And so there's all this worrying about, you know, even now, like all this racial stuff that has come up. I feel like all that is being come up to help us bring it to the surface so we can kind of see, okay, we've been through that and that's not really us. We're not a race, you know, we are not this limited identities and all these, but we are, you know, something much more universal and, um, and it's really, so Ayurveda does have this much more metaphysical dimension as well, not just this, uh, you know, medicine side of it. Right. But, it's, a uh, holistic, it's a holistic system, a holistic right. way of, of thinking, living. And it's also universal, you know, it has a universal outlook, but it focuses very much on the individual. And that's the difference. Um, the Western medicine focuses much more on the statistics. And I think that's where its strength and its weakness lies, because statistics allows you to say, okay, this can be, you know, this statement can be made because enough for enough people, this is true. But then no person is ever a statistic. So it has a very hard time saying for you, you know, for you, Armand, you know, this is, this is, the, this is what's happening in your individual system. And this is your, uh, your system's tendencies. It can't really tell you that. Um, it can only tell you like your blood pressure falls within this range. So therefore we deem you healthy, but maybe for you, um, you know, in the upper range, it's not healthy or, you know, so it, it can really only give you that kind of vague range of statistics. But um, in Ayurveda, it's much more qualitative. It's really qualitative versus quantitative is how we can understand, I think, East-West in a, in a nutshell, really. Um, because because the, the Vedas always put, the, you know, the emphasis on the human being is, first of all, an Atman, a soul. And a soul that has taken this specific birth and there is specific qualities that we are born with. And at the time of conception, there's a very definite ratio of the five elements. That's ether, air, fire, water, earth. There's a specific configuration that is unique to you. And, you know, it's, it's really Ayurveda's, that's why it's called a Veda, a codified body of knowledge, because it's about you discovering that and you learning how to use that knowledge to balance yourself so that you can thrive because homeostasis is of course you know part of health and it's a dynamic fluid state of balance and uh, so yeah we brought up this slide so you know ayurveda says like the entire universe uh, is born out of Prakriti and Purusha. It's not in this slide, but there's. It's like the Tao. Uh, the Tao becomes Yin and the Yang, right? There is the polarity of the female energy and the male energy, and Purusha and Prakriti, and then they they go. You know, when they get polarized, there is also a third element that is created. That is the universal. That is the. I guess it's the cosmic intellect, cosmic intelligence, and from that you know, there's a step down process, a step down process of from the infinite into this manifest form. And it happens always from the subtlest to the densest. So first we have space, then we have air. You know, once there is movement inside of space, there is, uh, once there's movement inside of space, there is, it's called air or vayu, 
right? Wind. And then when there's enough motion, there it creates combustion, friction, right? And heat. And that that combustion is called fire element. And then after a while, out of that combustion, there's condensation that happens, then becomes water. And water, uh, you know, its nature is to flow, but then after a while of flowing, it starts to congeal and it creates the earth element. So this sequence of Ayurveda's, you know, subtlest to the densest, um, this five element, Pancha Mahabhuta, is there. And, uh, and Ayurveda further distills it into the triad, right? Triad, when you have two elements, it has more personality, it has more power, if you will. And we call them doshas or bioenergies. And dosha literally means that which goes out of whack. <laughs> that which goes out of whack because oh. it's not easy to keep it's not easy to keep these subtle elements in balance. And the sages recognize that. So uh, that which goes out of whack, dosha, because it's also, it has the ability to create disease. So right. space and air form vata and they govern the nervous system. So vata is the most powerful because it's the subtlest of these. And then we have uh, the pitta, which is fire plus water. It's an unusual combination, fire plus water because fire can't exist in our biophysiology by itself. It has to be in a, contained in a bio, you know, feasible liquid medium. So uh, um, pitta manifests as enzymes, acids, you know, and even um, hormones inside of the human body. And then kapha, which is, um, actually its name means flourishing of water, kapha. And so water and earth, uh, come together to form the kapha, which is the structural element of our body, right? The okay. skeleton, the muscles. So this is like the, you know, really ABCs of Ayurveda. And um, we all have all three. We all have all five elements. And, but yeah, it's about dominance. It's about dominance. Some of us have more vata than, you know, than the others. And most of us in this era are dual doshic. So some of most of us are either vata pitta or pitta vata or kapha pitta, right? And so um, permutation of these. And so because of all the intermarrying, you know, intermarrying that happens, it's, it's most of us are not just one dosha dominant, but dualistic. And a very, very rare lucky person is called tridoshic who has perfect balance of all mm. the three doshas who rarely gets sick. Um, right. But yeah, so... Um, so, so, so let me ask you a couple of questions because that's, sure. that's, that's, you know, you, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm trying to think about how this relates to, you know, people specifically. And of course it does, but you know, in order to do that, you know, you went to the biggest macro picture, which is great because that, that, that is ultimately the framing. I just think people sometimes have a, a hard time. Again, I don't want to make it about East versus West because I think everyone has their, their limits and their ways of seeing things, but yeah, sometimes in kind of a matter of a fact, you know, material sense, someone might say, well, what does this have to do with me? But what, 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 what I hear you saying, and let me interpret and you correct me where I'm wrong is, you know, the, the, these are the elements that, you know, um, basically everything, all matter and organisms in the universe are made of ultimately these elements in some combination or another. And as far as humanity is concerned in our human health, both physical, emotional, mental, uh, we have 
these different elements just based on our backgrounds, our, our karma, our whatever variety of reasons we ended up in, in these bodies in the, on this earth at this time. We have all of these elements in some percentages. Um, now, let me ask you a question in that regard. A, correct me if I'm right or wrong in that, and B, um, is it okay that, that, that we're, as you said, that we're a little more trending towards fire or one element or the other? Is, is that because we all have more or less of one or the other? Is part of the goal to like get into balance and be more balanced? Or is it okay that we have a certain element or another as a strength and then we just learn to live through that channel? Yeah, great, great question, Arma. Um, so this is, there's a concept called Prakriti and the word Prakriti means nature. So in the individual context, so we are all born with unique Prakriti, which is like this ratio of Vata, Pitta, Kapha. And so some of us have this much Vata and this much Pitta and just a little bit of Kapha. Right? And some people have this. So, so what I want to say is that it's not about it's not about trying to get, you know, if, if this was a graph, like we have vata here, pitta here, kapha here, it's not about getting it all even, unless you are a perfect tridoshic person. We're all born with our own unique set point for balance. So if your vata is here and pitta here is here, this is your unique set point for balance. This is your original prakriti. And what happens is there's another term called vikriti. Vikriti is your current imbalance. So what happens is through the experience of life, uh, your, your original setting is like this, but then through living in New York City, running around, not eating the right foods or whatever, your vata might come all the way up here, right? And your pitta might get you know, even more aggravated because it's stressful. And, and you know, so, so the point of Ayurveda is to bring you back to your unique set point of balance. Right. Mm. So even for a, you know, so a Vata person, um, it will be prone to more Vata disorders. Yes. Sure. And, um, and, a, and a Pitta person will be more prone to Pitta person, hyperacidity, uh, skin flare ups, um, you know, anger and irritability. So that, that's the whole point of knowing your prakriti, your what is the cards you're dealt with uh, sure. in terms of the five elements, so that you know, okay, my pitta is really aggravated right now. I better, you know, change my diet. I better take a deep breath. I better cool off. You know, so we, you know, it really gives us gives us um, ability to, you know, not go off the you know extreme imbalance. So because it's much harder to bring that back in. So. Um, it's all about coming back to our unique prakriti. So if this is your original set point, then you want to come back here. But most of us are here and here or, you know, so it's, it's because of this process of life, we have come so far away from our original, you know, original nature in a way. So right. we, this is our attempt to go back from vikriti to prakriti. Now, does that, can that change over time, over the course of our life? Can our doshas actually, the base nature of that change? Or, or from your experience and knowledge, is, is this lifetime kind of set for us in that regard? Well, um, it's a great question. I mean, prakriti is for most people for a very long time. It is something that doesn't change. You know, it is 
pretty much with you. It's like your, it's really your genetic code. You know, it doesn't really change. Although, you know, uh, scientists are now finding that it is actually, you know, the genes can be changed through repeated behavior, right? We're finding that there is plasticity in that arena too. So it's not like we have to, you know, just, you know, we're stuck with it forever and we can never ever change it. But our original nature is pretty much a thread that runs through our entire life. Now, there is such a thing as, you know, if you live a very long time in a certain climate with certain energies that the vicarity becomes so constant that it can start to encroach on your original nature. And so it can become so powerful that it can appear as if that's your original property. This, this is also possible. Yeah, because I lived in India for like, you know, almost 10 years really. And originally I was, uh, I was um, Pitta Kapha. You know, Pitta was always my first, my first, uh, and then Kapha was my original. But by living in India, which has a lot more heat <laughs> and a lot more spicy foods and everything hot, 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 hot. And so when I got my pulse taken by a very well-known Vaidya, Ayurvedic doctor, he told me I was uh, Pitta Vata, I know, after some time of living in India. And then, but I, I, saw, I told him, another great doctor told me that I was Pitta Kapha. What's up with that? I thought Prakriti doesn't change. And he, he re felt it deeply and he said, oh yes, your, you know, your, your imbalance has become so constant that it is like covering up your original nature. So that can definitely happen. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so let's bring it to the concept of, um, I know you talk about Agni, we've had some discussions about it mm -hmm. and, and in the context of just some, some advice, how can people, because again, for the people in the West, this is a new language. So yeah. um, that being one of the elements, Agni, fire, um, talk about the importance of that in our health, how we could maintain that, how we can just basically understand ourselves better is one of the keys to just personal wellness. Um, so I'll yeah. give you the floor to discuss that a bit. <laughs> yeah, so I think Ayurveda, if you know, if you only hear Ayurveda and the word Agni, you really have one of the key, key principles of, you know, healing in Ayurveda because fire, if you look at the five elements, fire is the only element that can transmute, transmute a, um, something that is dense into something that is subtle, something uh, that is vibrating at a lower frequency to something that is subtler. In frequency. So Agni has always been a very seminal theme and a symbol in both yoga and Ayurveda because yoga is also about transmutation of energy through the chakras and you know and this ascension of consciousness from the base to the higher. But in Ayurvedic terms you know we can look at its physiological functions as well as its psychological functions as well as its spiritual functions as well. It has on all three levels, Agni is so significant. And um, I wonder if we have that slide on the functions of Agni. I think we have it there. And uh, because really in the original text, now this is a cartoon version, but it's actually taken from a classic text in, uh, in Ayurveda. And this text says that these are the functions of Agni, right? One, uh, is to really, it gives you long lifespan if you have strong Agni. Because if you, 
if your digestion is not strong, um, you know, if your digestion is weak, you cannot fully digest the food you eat and then there will be toxic residual material and that will circulate throughout your body and lodge in the weakest points of your body. We all have weak points because of past karmas or because of you know present life diseases and injuries. We all have weak points in the body and, and that undigested residual ama will lodge in that specific weak point and start to uh, fester the disease there. So anything like atherosclerosis, arthritis, um, you know, most of the diseases are because of this ama lodging in, you know, a, the weakest spot in your body. And so, you know, li long life is one of the things that Agni endows, and it also gives you uh, psychological qualities such as stability and patience, and as well as confidence and courage and fearlessness. If you think about those qualities, it's like you, you can feel that fire. We talk about the fire in your belly, right? It's about that motivation. And so that is also Agni, right? It is also joy and cheerfulness and contentment. Um, it's also about your ability to take information and digest it and distill it into knowledge, right? Knowledge into wisdom. So these are all also digestion processes, right? And, um, and the end result of healthy Agni is you have a healthy glow, a, a healthy aura, right? And you have this wholesomeness. And in the most physiological dimension, Agni is, you know, dealing with digestion, absorption, and assimilation in the small intestine, the stomach and small intestine, all the digestive organs. But um, I wanted to bring up this slide because it's all about, um, you know, how many levels this Agni operates on. And I think, you know, everybody who has ever had stomach uh, bug, you know, you, you understand that when your digestion is weak, your mental faculties also not very strong. So um, according to your prakriti, according to your specific constitutional type, there are four possible modes this agni can be. And here we're talking mainly um, the physiological digestion agni. But so the first, it's, which is very common, is called vishama agni. Vishama is a word that means irregular. And this is very common in vata individuals. Um, vata is very subtle, right? If you recall, it's made of space and air. And it's not very stable, right? Both things are invisible. And wind is very erratic in nature. And so Vata people often have irregular appetites. They're not hungry when it's time to eat, but then they're really hungry in between meals and they like to snack and they don't have a regular schedule. And, you know, they're kind of all over the place. And so they have irregular appetites. Sometimes they have no appetite. Sometimes they have voracious appetite and then they'll eat more than their digestive capacity. And then they get gassy and constipated. And so this is often very common with people who have Vishama Agni. Tikshna Agni is very common with people who are of a Pitta constitution, which is me, and I know this very well because it is too high, too high of a fire. So I can basically eat anything, but then um, 
I tell my partner, you know, like, you don't want to be around me when I'm really hungry because then I start to, you know, I will incinerate you, you know. It's just like, you want to, you know, you want to feed me first and then let's have a deep discussion, you know. So it's about, it's about, um, you know, pizza people tend to have voracious appetite if, if their meals are delayed or they can go into hypoglycemia. Um, other ways Tikhna Agni can manifest is like heartburn and acidity, right? So that's also not healthy. You know, so it's important to temper that. And then the last is mandagni. Manda means slow, and it's low flame, slow flame. And kapha people, kapha is the combination of earth and water. And what do you get when you combine earth and water? You get mud, right? You get this, you know, really thick thing. And so sometimes, you know, pitta, uh, kapha people have very... Uh, sluggish, usually slower digestion, and they can, they're the people who can do without breakfast. Um, they're the people who do best, you know, occasionally fasting, and um, they sh shouldn't eat too much because then they'll feel very heavy after meals. So mandagni is also not so healthy because as I said, when you have slow flame, then, and if you eat too much on that, then the food will not be completely digested, especially if you eat late at night. It will leave, you know, you sleep on that full stomach and then you will have this mass of undigested food. And if you leave that for a long time, it ferments and becomes this very toxic, sticky substance we call ama, and it circulates, right? And it's, it clogs channels. And part of what coronavirus does is also it creates this thick mucus, you know, inside of the lungs. It blocks the uh, passages, and the patient cannot breathe. And sometimes it can, it becomes, eventually becomes so hardened that there's no elasticity in the lungs. And so oxygen intake becomes lower and lower and lower until, you know, that's what the people are dying of. So um, um, we want to keep that. The last is what the agni that we want, sama agni. Sama means evenness. And there's many words starting with sama in, in, in uh, you know, yogic language, including samadhi, which means, you know, equal consciousness, but, you know, steady flame, steady flame, perfect, efficient digestion, nothing left over, you're neither, you know, high or low, it's like, you know, the yogi needs to learn exactly the right amount of food he can handle, and, you know, there's a teaching in yoga, like, you should value your hunger, because your hunger is what's, you know, your hunger is a sign of health. Your hunger will keep you seeking and, you know, keeping you active, you know, right? keeping you active, keeping your mind sharp. So um, this is one great teaching in Ayurveda too, right? Like don't eat till the gills, you know, eat, fill only one third of your stomach with food, fill the other third with, you know, liquids, preferably sipping hot liquids, and leave a third for circulation of, uh, circulation of uh, prana, so the churning can happen, right? Efficient digestion. So, 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 so don't go for the supersized meals, basically. <laughs> right, exactly. The all-you-can-eat oh, thing is really, I know. That ruins, but... you just ruined my lunch plans. There's a big buffet right down the block. Well, no, that's, that. look, that is, that's wisdom. I think most people um, conceptually understand that wisdom. It's just how to integrate these practices uh, in, into our lives, which is the challenge. 
Um, I, I know you have some advice and some tips for people that either may be experiencing some, some imbalance or discomfort or just uh, tips to use Agni, different uh, types of spices and herbs and uh, the recommendations. Yeah. So maybe you can give a couple of those to, uh, to, to us right now. Sure. And because of the, well, I guess you guys have um, come out of lockdown, but sometimes, you know, people might not have the fully stocked kitchen. So let me start with the most universal thing that everybody has is just simply hot water. Right? Everybody has access to hot water. Uh, you can heat water. And um, the first thing is drink hot water first thing in the morning because hot water will clear the channels. And if you did eat late last night, if you had that extra slice of pizza late at night, you know, then um, the hot water can help start to digest that, you know, and it will clear the channels. It also um, clears the lymphatics. So um, if you drink ice cold water, what happens is like the body has to retain that cold water so it make, creates fluid retention, first of all. Um, it gives you kind of water weight. And, um, and, and it's also stagnating the lymphatic flow. So we want the lymphatic system nice and flowing. And also it raises the basal metabolic rate, which helps um, burn more calories and you know, keeping the extra weight off. Um, and it also, certain enzymes are not active in, at low temperatures. So hot water helps to really um, activate all of your enzymes so you can have efficient digestion. And you can't actually gulp down like large amount of hot, hot water, right? So you can't really dilute your stomach juices either. So if you sip hot water with your meals, it will also enhance digestion. Uh, and then the second is, yeah, using spices. Um, for you know vata people or kapha people who are not hungry um, who don't you know who, who know they should um, have proper appetite but don't then uh, chewing a slice of ginger with a pinch of rock salt is really a classic you can put a little squeak of lime juice as well and chew that and it will kindle your agni um, and uh, Ayurveda really teaches you know you should you know, have warm foods, cook it, you know, cook your foods with spices and it makes it lighter, um, especially if it's like a lot of dairy. During the coronavirus pandemic, I don't rec rec recommend too many things like cheeses and um, things that are clogging of your channels. Um, like eating yogurt late at night, for example, is very channel clogging. You know, having, um, you know, the whole pint of ice cream uh, at late at night is also channel clogging. But, um, you're, you're, you're um, ruining all my plans for the day. <laughs> sorry. Cut out the buffet. But during, during the daytime, right? During the daytime, it's summer season. So, you know, you can enjoy it, you know, um, after lunch in moderation. And everybody says, you know, it's not about deprivation, but it's, it's really things in moderation and um, really making a, a little compromise, right? So uh, you can enjoy the food, especially if you have, if you're pitta like myself, you know, you can eat, a, you know, a nice meal. Um, you, it's, it's okay to feel like satisfied with your meal and, and all of that, but uh, it's just uh, make sure that you're not, um, you know, inviting future, you know, future things that can be avoided, right? Um, sure. Because like 
having a whole pint of ice cream at night feels great maybe at that time, but then you pay for it maybe the next day or maybe next few days. So um, and, um, that flour that you just took away um, has some of the uh, spices. So if people are, you know, if you're into cooking, I highly recommend you use, you know, ginger, garlic. Garlic is great also. You know, coronavirus hates heat. So um, ginger, cumin, black pepper, garlic, cloves, these all raise your um, basal metabolic rate, it raises your uh, temperature, body temperature as well. So these, especially ginger, I mean, especially, sorry, garlic is wonderful, as well as cloves. Cloves are specific to the respiratory system. So these two herbs are really wonderful for preventing. And even if you're nursing, if you already got the virus, um, there is uh, an Ayurvedic remedy in which we you know, make a decoction out of garlic and cloves and turmeric. You know, even just putting all those things uh, into and, and just boiling it for a while and just drinking that uh, liquid is also, and I'm not giving specific formula right now, but um, it's, it's garlic, cloves, and turmeric. Those three things are really wonderful for both preventing coronavirus and healing coronavirus. So, um, and that's this should be wonderful. pretty easily available. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, look, it, it's, this is one of the things I love about the, the Eastern approach. It's, I mean, food is basically the medicine and medicine is the food and, and it's all about maintaining that balance. Whereas in, in, in the way we're trained to think here right now, I mean, everyone in the US and probably to, to a large degree worldwide is like, just can't wait till the vaccine comes out or right. told what medicine they can take. And, and it feels relieved about hearing what, what pharmaceuticals are, are able to treat me or what medicine can I take if I get sick? But people a little less commonly think about, I mean, they would look at what you're presenting here as like, oh, okay, that's, that's preventative, but what happens if I get sick or how do I really protect myself immunity wise? But the, these are the ways that nature has made available to us. And, and um, I'm a believer as I know you are that nature provides us with everything we need. Yeah, I mean, even just having this decoction, uh, just, you know, one cup in the morning, in the evening um, can go a long way. And because really we're finding that so many, you know, coronavirus is, you know, really everywhere now. And the people who are having strong immunity is, I mean, maybe they even, they're asymptomatic because they're so strong, you know, and they're just producing the antibodies. So it is... Um, taking care of our immunity. And we can't neglect also the natural source of energy, which is breathing itself. And so doing breathing exercises, which doesn't cost anything. And of course, in a place that is, I would do it in a, you know, a secluded place with lots of fresh air around you, but doing the yogic breathing practices is so uh, powerful. I mean, we cannot discount the drugless ways we can really uh, make ourselves strengthen our immunity. I would say those drugless things are probably the most powerful in a way because, you know, anything that we take from outside has a limited effect. But if we are generating from within, it's, you know, we're creating, we have the most complete pharmacy inside this body, right? And so anything that opens the channels, you know, I think the doing the yoga practices, the walking, you know, just the physical exercise, but the breathing practices of yoga is very, very powerful. I think people don't quite understand. Um, when I was doing the internship, I would often have patients of asthma 
and the doctor would take his prescription pad and actually prescribe breathing practices like it was medicine and hand it to him he said do this every day in the morning and also take this you know take this tablet uh, of herbs but mm. um so it was you know it was beautiful to see that we call this acharya rasayana the behavioral medicine is we can't really discount this this is actually the most important thing with coronavirus right now right so um sure. You know, keeping that distance and doing all those, you know, being vigilant about all those things um, and doing things like the breathing practice, particularly the yeah. Ujjayi Pranayam, the Bhastrika Pranayam, uh, the Kapalabhati Pranayam. These are all channel clearing practices. Right. So, um, you know, I think people can Google them or YouTube them and you know, learn those techniques. And, you know, you don't need anything external then. Sure. You know? But we think that breathing is something we do 24 7 so it's something that can be neglected but actually it's the doorway to not just health but you know so many you know worlds as you know the mystical world opens through the breath so um and i think when we when people start learning pranayama people are so surprised at how little control they have over this respiratory apparatus that we've been right. born with you know and um, it's really a conditioning. Right. No, it's training like anything. It does require some, some, some focus and some consciousness, some attention on it. Um, I would love to have you on another time to actually walk us through some of those, uh, maybe some yeah. of these yoga disciplines that you've obviously dedicated your life and your practice to. Um, Marika, we only have a few minutes left, so I do want to shift gears to sure. um, a, a challenge that you can offer uh, to you know anyone who's listening as far as how to they can further educate themselves on themselves right because this is about mm -hmm. self knowledge and using these ancient you know practices and health and wellness you know principles um, uh, that you're presenting here how can how can we start making it more practical and personal as you said personalized and customized uh, uh, to us so please leave us off with you know, a brief challenge, and, I'll, and then I'll pull up your site and some of the, uh, the, the quiz that I know is, is on your list. Um, and then within that, just the context of how people can also reach you to kind of learn more about uh, what it is you, you offer, uh, you know, hundreds of, sure. of, of people. Um, so first thing is, you can take the dosha quiz to really get to a basic level of understanding of what is the most dominant dosha in you know for you as an individual what was you know the most what's the genetic card you're dealt with as far as dosha is concerned and there's a really easy quiz um you can go to this visionaryyoga.com forward slash dosha quiz and it will kind of calculate for you what that primary dosha is and then doing just one thing i, I you know i believe in really uh, keeping when it comes to building habits, it's always good to just start with one thing. So whether you know if you're diagnosed as a vata person, you know, do having embracing one practice or one principle. I would say for a vata person, it's like just regulating your life, creating some uh, regularity in your life, whether it's eating at the same time or going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day, uh, creating that level of stability for yourself, um, or even doing, you know, warm oil massage for yourself every day. So that's something for the Vata person. Pitta person could um, 
choose alkaline foods. That's a really great tip for Pitta people. So if you, um, if you do the quiz and you end up, you know, that you're, 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 the quiz tells you you're, you're a Pitta person and we're in a Pitta season now, the summer. So um, how can you, you know, keep yourself cool and uh, choose, you know, more alkaline foods. That's more foods that have bitter taste in them. And it's the taste that's most lacking in the American diet is uh, bitter and pungent. Right? We have a ton of salty, sweet, sour, but we're missing bitter and pungent tastes. And so um, for a bitter person, we don't recommend pungent, but bitter. That means green, you know, uh, uh, dark green leafy veggies or aloe vera juice or um, what else is good? Um, coconut water is not bitter, but it is very good for pitta person. So, you know, choosing one thing that you can do for yourself that will, you know, bring that pitta down is wonderful. And then the kapha person, if you're, the quiz tells you you're kapha, then I think the best thing for kapha person is to move. <laughs> so, you know, implementing a regular exercise ritual, you know, um, or making sure that your food is, um, cooked and light in nature, right? avoiding those yogurts and the white stuff, the, the white sugar, the white flour, as much as you know, is practical, practically avoidable for you um, so that you don't clog your channels. Um, yeah, and maybe, so you can choose just one thing, you know, and for all the doshas, you can do, you know, breathing practices because it's balancing for, you know, all the five elements. So, um, you know, implementing one habit, choosing one habit and doing consistently over, you know, maybe the next, if you can do it for a week, you can do it for 21 days, you know, they say 66 days is when it really becomes automated in your nervous system. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's just, keeping the bar low and just choosing one thing and being consistent with it. So that's the challenge. <laughs> so you can go to the Wonderful. dosha quiz for that. Yeah. Visionaryyoga.com forward slash dosha quiz. Thank you, Mariko. Visionaryyoga.com slash dosha quiz. Thank you for your, uh, your service, your contribution, your words of, of wisdom and uh, keep doing what you do. The world, uh, the world needs more of it. So I look forward to speaking with you again, having you on, multiple times so we can continue this project, this exploration and the practical nature of it, how it can help us. Thank you. Our minds yeah, thank and, you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Armand. I mean, I think the polymath uh, idea is really uh, exciting and, uh, you know, the kind of the modern Renaissance man and, you know, um, and I think it's, and it's woman. we're living... <laughs> <laughs> and woman, yes, yeah. at a time of you know great integration, and uh, I think that you know including integration of east and west, right, including uh, integration of the ancient and the cutting edge. I think that's really where we need to go, and taking the best of both, you know, and refining it, and uh, and and it's it's really we need to come bring all these uh, world the treasure troves of world's wisdom together so that we can become optimized human beings, right? That's, I think that's why this crisis is happening. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm with you 100%. And it's, it's, a, it's a moment in history that, as you said, 2020, this disruptive uh, time, and it's, it's a great window. And um, yeah. I, I hope that we as humanity can take that leap forward. But uh, instead of sitting back and hoping, people like yourself, myself, and as we know, many others are working towards bringing that understanding together. And so uh, God bless you. Safe travels back. 
whenever you. you're able to make it back. Yes. And we'll, uh, we'll stay connected. Thanks so much, everyone. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye now.